I always say Queens culture is sneaker culture. We just grew up with fly kicks. That's what you showed up to at the handball courts, at the basketball courts. And that's sort of where I fell in love with sneakers. We're the majority group, and this is Style as Identity, where we profile the designers and founders whose mere existence shifts our understanding of the style status quo. We're your hosts. I'm Lola Katero. And I'm Frankie Aquazum. And after years of settling for style that didn't represent us, we set out to find the brands that did. Join us each episode as we learn from brands that are an extension of their values, identity, and aesthetic. And because of them, we're seen and represented. Are you a women's sneaker size 5 or 14.5? Lilith NYC's got you. This Queens-based footwear brand is made for women, femmes, and all underrepresented people in the sneaker world, aka everyone that wears sneakers. Lilith NYC is putting a spin on the sneaker industry, leading with size ranges that are inclusive, fresh designs, and have us feeling like we're floating. Today, we're with Sarah Sukumaran, founder of Lilith NYC, to reflect on gender and footwear, the future she is creating, and why her brand is rooted in the power of self-expression and our divine feminine energy. In Lilith's words, our shoes are on and our eyes are open. Now, you've got to see these shoes and the inspo that started it all. Let us text it to you. Text Lilith, that's L-I-L-I-T-H, to us at 833-495-4773 to get the guide. Lola, should we do it? Let's get into it. Sarah, hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I mean, I would say welcome to the majority, but it's kind of something you're born into and you're here. And thanks to you, you are what makes us major and the majority group. So we are honored and energized, Frankie. I would say energized. <laughs> we're so we're ready to have this chat. So thank you. Thank you. No, I'm excited to be here and excited to chat all things footwear. Well, let's get right into it. I feel like as Lola and I have been reading about Lilith and really getting inspired by what you do, Lilith NYC, for everyone, just to be clear, (laughs) something that came up is going all the way back to your origin, which was to really solve this problem of sizing disparity in the sneaker industry specifically. And something that you were so taken aback by was the fact that what was available for women didn't really match what their actions were, which is that they kind of held a healthy chunk of purchasing power when it came to purchasing sneakers. And so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, like the difference between like what they're doing and how their needs like aren't necessarily being met in some aspects. Totally. I think I'll probably take a step back into time to kind of set the context, because I think where I am now in 2022 was really kind of brought upon just my experience as a woman consumer, or even just a girl consumer growing up in Queens. So I always say Queens culture is sneaker culture. We just grew up with fly kicks. That's what you showed up to at the handball courts, at the basketball courts. And that's sort of where I fell in love with sneakers. I also like to say and set the context that, you know, growing up in the 90s, that's when the NBA was in its prime and you had a lot of athletes that people would follow. So irrespective of what franchise they belonged to or what city you were from, you kind of followed players. And with players came 
their shoes, right? That's kind of how I got into it. What shoe did you follow? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I will, <laughs> so I did not, I'm not athletics I, at all. I watched basketball, but was, did not play, but always felt the need to have the basketball silhouettes. So I had like at some point like Nike Airway Ups when I was a little older, like maybe 10, but when I was eight, I was in love with like the Uptempos, which was Scottie Pippen's shoe or like the Foam Posits, which is Penny Hardaway's shoe. I was not a Jordan fan, surprisingly. I know people are shocked by that, but I did not own any Jordans growing up. It wasn't until adulthood. So yeah, that's kind of where it started. And, you know, I think I had a bit of a growth spurt when I was eight years old and my parents had to take me shopping. Like they would take me to Foot Locker, like back to school seasons where I can kind of get them to pay a premium for footwear. Don't I know it? Right. <laughs> exactly. You're a parent, you know. So that's when I can convince them to kind of, you know, get me a little something more expensive than usual. And that's when, you know, I found myself just naturally attracted to the male, the men's section, because I kind of outgrew the children's or kind of the girls' section. And then my only option was to kind of look at the women's styles or the men's. And then the women's styles I just was simply not attracted to and sort of just naturally gravitated to men's. And so I would say for the next... 20 years or so, my experience has always been shopping in the men's section, partly because of sizing, but then probably as I got older and kind of had a sense of style, probably driven more by just the colorways and like noticing the type of materials being used. Like I love suede and, you know, I'm kind of a materials person. So I pay attention to that stuff. So that is how I kind of got frustrated and ended up in this world of footwear. And I can kind of go into that, but that's kind of the context into how, what inspired it. But fast forward, I launched this company in 2020. I was just fed up. Like at that point I'm in my you know mid thirties and I found myself still shopping in the men's section, still unable to find, you know, high heat footwear or like, you know, like the stuff that drops on the sneakers app in my size. Cause I wear a woman's seven, which is a men's five and a half. So you're simply going to be pushed into grade school sizing immediately. You don't really even have the option to shop. So, and I was like, this cannot be it. There's got to be a better way. I think my first thought, this was in 2015, was, you know, the shopping experience is broken for women. And when you go onto a website, it's so curated for men. You have to go through, I was finding myself on multiple sites, multiple tabs open, trying to find a size, trying to find a colorway. And coming from an e-commerce background, I was like, this has to be fixed. There's got to be a better way just from a shopping experience. From an industry perspective, footwear has always been sold to men. It's Mm -hmm. been driven by male sport. So the experience, whether it's campaign ads, you know, TV ads, even just how the website is curated, it's always been through the lens of male sport. And that's how they've sold footwear, even to women. And we've just been so conditioned to take that for what it is. And that's been the experience. And I felt like working in e-commerce, knowing the data, knowing that women have a huge share of wallet, they buy for the household. I was like, why is this shopping experience? Why is this website not curated for my needs? Right. And I was, you know, I work in analytics, so I know all the data that's, you know, who's spending time on the sites. So that was 2015. Can I just say, I read this article, New York Times article, 2014, it's literally about, hey, women wearing sneakers, is this the next big trend? You know, sneakers were invented in 1895, and that's just a few years ago. And the article literally ended with, and I quote, savor the moment, but don't get too comfortable because trends come and go. So it's like, cool, you found these comfortable things. And it's just so weird to me to think that this shoe designed for comfort and casual wear is marketed or acknowledged as a trend for a whole gender. That's 
interesting that's the news and the media saying that. And then you're on the analytics side saying, I'm I'm also seeing that this is an underserved market and like not acknowledged as like a real, real person with a wallet and a need. Yeah. And I think in 2014, 2015, it was, you know, we saw from a workplace perspective, workplaces were just becoming more and more casual. Women didn't have to wear heels to the office. We were looking for a bit of comfort, you know, startups kind of surging, even in New York, right? Not necessarily a tech hub, but people were becoming more and more comfortable with casual workwear. Athleisure was booming as well. And so that totally makes sense. But the fact that they made the assumption that it was a trend was is comical, right? Because when it comes to women, that's typically the case. They think it's kind of built on on that. But yeah, so that was 2015 for me. Tabled the idea. I thought I was going to build something from a tech perspective in the women's sneaker space because I was just simply so frustrated. But at the time, I was at a startup in the middle of an acquisition. And when I had done the research, simply didn't have the financial means to do it because you need a lot of overhead costs. If you carry a footwear inventory, you need to have a brick and mortar store if you want a wholesale account with some of these big brands. So completely tabled the idea and ended up getting acquired and working at a German tech company for another three years before Nike reached out with a role as director of product on their analytics and tech side. What a journey. What a journey. And so you go to Nike and you're like, this is it. I don't need to build a solution because I'm at the place. I can make some change. I know what's happening. So, so what happened? So I get to Nike and, you know, I feel like this was an absolute dream gig for a girl from Queens who's sneaker obsessed. But honestly, I was never... The thought of working at a footwear company was never on my career path. I was so hyper-focused on my tech career. I was becoming more and more technical, learned coding, learned SQL, learned Python. And that was where I thought my career was headed. So when Nike reached out, I was like, okay, this is dope. I can combine my love of data, my love of sneakers, and do something there. And so the team I joined was actually a newly acquired team. Nike did a acquisition of a predictive analytics company. Uh, the platform can essentially predict future cash flow for Nike, which is Super cool, especially since, you know, you have this data that data set that you can work with to essentially un- better understand your consumers. And this was at the time where big footwear retailers were actually moving to what's called direct to consumer and moving away from wholesale. So they were starting to like get rid of their mom and pop accounts, moving away from even like big shop retailers carrying their product because they wanted to learn how to sell to Sarah, how to sell to Lola or Frankie. And that meant understanding their data for once because they have been in the wholesale model for the last 40, 50 years. So got there. I'm a startup person. My whole career has been in startup. Found that just things moved a lot slower than I think I expected, but also just frustrated that despite the data, despite women's sneakerheads being so vocal about the fact that they don't have footwear for their needs, for their sizes and the colorways that they want, the industry was just so slow to react. And I think I was there for about two years before I realized, you know, if I want to see the change, if I want to be able to like build comfort into shoes and see that happen for myself, I need to do it on my own. And I believe I gave notice February 2020, which is a month before the pandemic. Great timing on my part. <laughs> a lot of time for uh, deep work. Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> but so here you are and you built a silhouette with two colorways. And what was the, from all the personal experience and the analytics, what were the I guess the challenges or the pain points that you put into solving with this shoe. I think there was a couple of things, I think from both the brand perspective and on the footwear side. So when I set out in March, 2020, essentially, I had two of those kind of tracks in parallel working. So, you know, building out what would the footwear actually look like, addressing the things that I had mentioned earlier, which were, you know, the fact that we don't have a full size run when sneakers are dropped, 
the fact that typically in women's footwear, there's a use of cheaper materials, synthetics, because they think that women are focused more on aesthetics versus performance. Performance tooling is typically stripped out. So when I say performance tooling, I mean like the outsole. Sometimes there won't even be an airbag midsole being used in the women's. I found that problematic. And oftentimes, because women are shopping in grade school sizing, that means that they're wearing shoes meant for children. Children churn out of their shoes. They're not made you know, at the standard that men's or adult shoes are made in. So you're essentially saying, hey, women go shop in the children's section. And that has been the case for decades. So I knew out of the gate that those were kind of the core issues I wanted to address. So materials, the size run, premium tooling. On the brand side, I felt like historically all of the footwear brands have been rooted in male sport. Everything was rooted in very hyper-masculine culture. And that was still very much the case in 2020 at the time when I was building the brand. And so I wanted to kind of flip the paradigm and build a brand through the lens of the divine feminine. There's a lot going on between footwear and brand, had my hand in a little bit of everything, but I really wanted to challenge the notion that women had, you know, I felt like the industry had put us in a box. Like you had to be, and to be honest, when I grew up, I was a tomboy and I felt like I had to dress like a tomboy because I hung out with guys on the basketball courts and for you to kind of fit in and kind of belong that's how I felt like I had to dress to fit in. Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that. And it was, it was really hard to go back and forth and wear a dress when I felt like it, because I think shoes and clothes, they didn't have the range that they have right. today and choices. So, you know, people, we put each other in boxes when we, you know, try to understand and it's like, okay, you're wearing basketball shorts and now you're wearing a dress. Like, what's the deal? And it's like, can I... Totally. There's absolutely, I feel like we grew up with the binary. It's also what you see too, because I remember growing up, I felt like I had like, I mean, I grew up going to church. It's like, you have your church clothes and then you have your like street clothes. And I feel like whenever I put my kicks on, I was like, all right, the only thing that I see people, like if I see like people in marketing or ads, or even just like, like you said, male athletes wearing this, I see what they're wearing. So I would think of pairing it the same way. Exactly. Versus like, when I see like women in my life, I look up to, I see what they're wearing. So there's that, that I should be wearing versus like in a lot of your marketing, you see people mixing all kinds of outfits with your shoes. So it kind of sets that new tone. Your photography is quite remarkable. I would say just because it, it communicates so much. And so this means you shot that during lockdown or just after, what was that like? We shot in 21. So the fall of 21, we actually shot in two cities. So we shot in Queens because that was really important because I felt like I really wanted the brand rooted in kind of that nostalgia of Queens that I grew up and inspired by, you know, sneaker culture um, and also just the diversity. Because one of the biggest issues with the campaigns that I was seeing was that it never reflected the folks that were driving sneaker culture, which were brown and black folks. And so I wanted to make sure that the photography reflected that. And I think Queens is simply the embodiment of diversity. And so it just made sense to show up there. We also shot in Sri Lanka. I wanted, you know, another theme in our brand is tropical modernism. And I wanted to juxtapose sort of the grittiness of Queens, the lushness of island life, tropical modernism, a type of architectural style pioneered by a woman architect in Sri Lanka. So all of these themes around the divine feminine and kind of acknowledging women's contributions, whether it's architecture, sneaker culture, those were important themes for us to show up. And so the photography was key. I, I knew that, you know, a brand launching alongside all of these legacy brands who are known for their marketing engines, they have their own creative agency arms. 
I couldn't show up and just like shoot something on my iPhone. Like I couldn't fall flat as a woman founder, I think too, and not show up with the right creative alongside the product. Cause I knew I had faith in the product, but I was like, okay, the marketing needs to show up too. I did have those two campaigns run and we shot that. I think it was October, November. It was pretty late because I had to wait for my footwear samples to show up. And then Sri Lanka went into lockdown four times before we can actually shoot. So it was just literally a waiting game of like, you know, when we can get the models, everyone coordinated, tested and make sure that it was super safe. Can you go into the divine feminine a bit? I haven't heard those words together before I I met you and the brand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah. So for me, divine feminine was super important because I think Again, going back to the world of sneaker culture being so hyper-masculine, I wanted to approach this and allow women and femmes to explore sexuality, style, gender, all on a spectrum. And divine feminine essentially is an energy that we all embody. It transcends gender binary. You know, we have a divine masculine, we have a divine feminine, and, you know, it's fluid. Some days, you know, I embrace my divine feminine a lot more than my masculine, but on some days I'm fully in my divine masculine. So it's just an energy that we embody and step into. And it really rooted in intuition. I felt like for so long, like when I would engage with these legacy footwear brands, like I would never get that feminine sense, right? It was either hyper-sexualized where it's like through the male gaze and never through a woman's gaze. And so that's kind of why I really wanted to focus on that. And then divine feminine too, interestingly, from a brand perspective, as we were doing a deep dive, often represented by a serpent throughout culture, region, time, the serpent has been a symbol of the divine feminine. I also come from an island called Nainadiva, which translates to the island of serpents. We have a goddess who's often represented with a five-headed cobra, kind of as a protector. So all of these things, as we were kind of mood boarding and vision boarding, were kind of coming to life and just jumping out and screaming at me to be like divine feminine. So that is how it all came about. I love two things you said. One is the intuition part, because you're taking it back to something that we all have, like regardless of what you look like and how other people see you. And so in a way it's like humanizing it, just making it uniform. It's like connecting us back to like our gut almost. And I feel like that we'll talk about this in a little bit, but that connects back to like what you're trying to do, which is to like kind of take gender out of this and make it representative of something that we, we all have. Another thing too, is I like what you said about the goddess, because I think a big part of the last like five years, it, in terms of finding my expression is understanding my history. I think growing up as like a kid of immigrants, a lot of it was just trying to assimilate. And honestly, sneaker culture was part of that too, because it felt like my connection to like something that was so American, even though now that I know more, I know sneaker culture doesn't just exist in America. It's like one shade of it, but it's like connecting it back to our roots. is kind of like this, something that I've been trying to do more and more, just like figure out where, because it's a source of strength. And I think when you're making a sneaker for starting with, you know, for women and femmes, you're making something that's a little more permanent versus what Lola was saying earlier of like trends. Like you're making something that's more permanent, like has like follows us along our life. And I think that's really cool. And I think, yeah, going back to your point about, you know, divine feminine and gut, I was also going through like a gut health journey myself. Like, and I think that is so, you know, rooted in intuition too, just like your microbiome is honestly what manifest everything in our body. It's like our compass. It really is our compass. I guess I was going through that journey subconsciously, didn't even realize, but intuition and gut health was definitely <laughs> a driving force in building the brand. And then to the point of like, just, you know, going back to your roots, hundred percent. I mean, like even just through the brand, I wanted it to be super rich in storytelling and not so, you know, sticker culture is sometimes I feel so rooted in US exceptionalism, right? And I think it's, you know, often driven by these key cities that 
these brands have targeted LA, New York, Chicago. But when you Guilty. take a step back, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 100%. When you take a step back, there's so much that connects us. Like people get, like you can be halfway across the world and someone will spot you in a pair of sneakers and get super excited to talk yes. to you about it. And I felt like, how do we, how do we drive that through our brand too, that it has this global, inherent global nature. And again, because of that Queens connection, I think that came so naturally that people see Queens, they automatically assume global. Someone in, we have customers in Indonesia, for example, like they see it, they buy the shoe, they completely vibe with the brand. That's what I wanted. And it's insane to see how it's actually kind of like manifesting and kind of like rolling out at the moment. But 100%, I feel like going back to your roots was an interesting journey because I don't think I've ever took the time to explore that creative side. I've always been such like an analytics brain and having to unlock the creative side has been has been interesting. That's filled with so much meaning, like everything. And when I think or when I hear you talk about the elements that went into this shoe, to me, it's also a acknowledgement of of what we deserve to put on our feet, regardless of of gender. You know, you said there's vibrant quality. Is that the tooling, the vibrant tooling, the yep, the tooling. outsole. Thank you. And for me, learning about the brand and just sneakers in general, as someone that's been participating, I'm not just now realizing I'm participating in a system that it wasn't built to serve me or even consider me as a customer. And Lilith has really done that. And I think it's fascinating and that we're kind of just at the beginning of, of this for people to realize what this thing we put on our feet every single day and what we deserve to to put there and help us feel good and not, you know, give us arthritis at the age of 35. <laughs> <laughs> on my way. 100%. No, I feel that. No, I completely agree. I think, you know, so long we talked about this before, but I always say women are asked to compromise. Then you kind of countered with, well, we don't even know that we're compromising because yeah. that's kind of what we've been sold all these decades. Conditioning. Conditioned to kind of think that, you know, we women only pay attention to aesthetics and it's not performance. And they don't care about comfort. But anytime I talk to women, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is I need a comfortable pair of sneakers that I can stand in all day. And why can't we have comfort and, and style? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So yeah, Lilith is trying to meet that need, trying to build performance into lifestyle shoes so that you can transition day into evening. That's the goal. And um, we all currently have a pair on right now. Yes. Um, and they feel like clouds. Yeah. Feels like I was born in them, I would yeah. say. I, <laughs> you know, I could go to sleep in them. Just yeah. like get right in the bed and be like, did I take my shoes off? I, Someone don't, tagged don't, me no, don't recently care. <laughs> and said, they feel like mattresses for my feet. And I love that. I was like, <laughs> yes. Do I see a mattress brand collaboration Maybe. in your Maybe. I think so, right? Is 1-800-MATTRESS still available? <laughs> <laughs> something you said too about people who like your consumers who vibe with the brand takes us back to something that we were talking about too around like the whole aspect of sneaker culture and the hype and when you say like vibe with the brand vibe with the storytelling it signals like inclusion to me which you know a lot for me as someone who like loves sneakers it does feel like part of the hype of sneaker culture is the exclusivity, is mm -hmm. the fact that things are limited. There's a bit of scarcity. You kind of have to like be in the know. So like, how do you think about those two different aspects? Gosh, yeah, no, those are definitely top of mind. I think personally, I think the hype culture is part of what's so problematic with sneaker culture today is that you have this booming resale market where everyday folks can't even just get a pair of shoes that they want because it's so driven by bots buying them up on the website, people just copying them to then, 
you know, turn that, like basically flip them on the resale market and no one's actually holding on and enjoying the shoes and putting them on their feet. And I always tell my customers like, wear your shoes. Like this is not a company where I want you to kind of put this in a box and put it up on the, like, no. Okay. If you want to buy a second pair and do that, but like, I want you to experience the shoe because so much thought went into it. Why would I want you to just put this up on your mantle? But yeah, I think the hype culture for me still trying to explore, like how do we maintain this level of exclusivity where people want to cop a pair, but also make them recognize that this is not necessarily a brand driven by hype culture, that you can still be part of sneaker culture and part of Lilith's community and not have to be on your phone at 10 a.m., you know, to catch that W like so many folks do today, right? And I'm I'm guilty of that too. (laughs) (laughs) Four computers open. No judgment. I I used to like be in the train and like hope for a Wi-Fi hotspot. And I would always like play this, like it's kind of a thrill, right? Like, am I going to get it this morning or not? And usually more often than not, not get it. But yeah, so I think for me, it's just still, it's a constantly evolving. Like, you know, I think also women are not necessarily so driven by that, by kind of like this notion of being gamified and having to like cop a drop as soon as it, you know, hits. I think it's a little different. And I think, you know, we've sort of, again, everything has been built around male culture and how male interact with products and brands. So I'm trying to figure out what is the best way for women and femmes and underrepresented folks? Like, how is it that they want to interact with us? Is it through limited drops? Is it through just having available shoes right now? Like I have a size run that's from five to 14 and a half and that's on the site. You don't need to go and rush to get it. It's fully available. So I think we're kind of trying to change the dynamics of hype culture to make it more inclusive. Like you don't need to be on an app where it drops necessarily. So I think that's an evolving. I love the friction there because... You know, hype kind of talks, it like hype and scarcity go hand in hand and making it inclusive at the same time. I mean, I think it's totally possible. People that are new and with fresh perspectives like Lilith NYC are the right people to explore that. And I can't wait to see, you know, what happens. <laughs> I've always, I mean, I think it's interesting because the the physical drops, back to your point, like they were more or less like in New York City or in like areas that it wasn't accessible for other people to go to them, no matter how bad they wanted to participate. And now it's moved online. It's accessible to more people geographically, but because of bots and everything, then it's still not. And so I think there's just some cool experimentation there and I'll be there, you know, 2 a.m. whether it's on my phone or around the corner. But no, I think it's fascinating. And I'm also totally intrigued of when it's not just for one gender, what does that look like? Is it because does the current system kind of actually work for everybody, but we've been excluded from it? I mean, I was, I was on StockX and there are 10,000 shoes in women's styles Mm -hmm. available. And there's 170,000 for men. Which is just like, what? (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, does it not work for us or does it like, is it the system or the offering? Right. Is it a function of not having the styles available so you can't flip it? Or is it just, we're not engaging in that process? Right. And I mean, I'm a huge consumer of StockX. I think it's more indicative of the problems in the system than necessarily all of these people representing them. Although, you know, they could make some changes, but I don't even think half the time, unless I'm trying to get the Melody Asani shoe, I'm not like, right. oh, let me see what the women's offerings are. I'm like, exactly. no, <laughs> like I'm going to go to the- You know exactly what you want when you I know exactly what I want. And that feeds the problem too, because for people looking at the data, they're like, oh, it's fine. Right. Like, it looks like it's Everyone's fine. buying it's the men's good. shoes. Yeah. Right. Like, but it's like, well, yeah, because we're conditioned. We've been here. We've done this. Exactly. Yeah. 
I think too, you know, just looking at early sales data on my side, like I think when I set out to start the brand, I was so focused on the women's sneakerhead. But this other consumer profile who I knew existed, but I wasn't quite paying attention to was like the women luxury or DTC consumer has emerged. And I think with her or them, they are not necessarily interested in sneaker culture. They just want to support a woman-founded brand. They want, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that performance built into like a luxury, elegant, well-designed shoe. Who would period. say no to that? And to me, that's a much broader, as we know, that is a much broader market than sneakerheads. That's kind of why I'm not so centered on that hype culture, that need for drop, because I know that there is a much broader market out there that, you know, as long as that, that shoe is available on the website and you have different colorways and maybe new styles, they're going to purchase right? It's not necessarily driven by hype culture. And that is a much broader market. And that is a global market. Damn. It's pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just looking forward and maybe doing a little back and forth, like looking for, looking back to look double forward, dutch. if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. A little double dutch. Like something you mentioned is like, you know, we've talked a lot about sneaker production, availability, marketing, representation, being so sedimented in male culture and sports, male sports specifically, and, you know, something that I keep thinking about is like the fact that growing up and now there haven't been that many like signature shoes for women and women athletes the same way there have been for men. And in like looking at this, I was like, what is the main difference? Like, you know, you see more and more, you see like sponsorships are fine. Like, you know, I'm not saying we're perfect. We're definitely not. But, you know, I'll see a sponsorship or a, like a feature with with like an athlete who's a woman. But I think the difference is that since like you mentioned this, Sarah, like the Cheryl swoops, like mm -hmm. the swo air swoops, like back in like the 90s, 90s which I think right. was like peak viewership for WNBA, WNBA games. 100%. Yeah. Like since then, we haven't had like as much of a signature shoe. Like we haven't had this, like this person's name is on it, you know, right. like, and thinking about the future and us when we were younger growing up, like it's really important to see people like look like you doing things that you want to do. And I feel like there's this like mismatch between like this idea of like having our name on something or even like our initials on something. 100%. Yeah. So like the Cheryl Swoops, to your point, I must have been around eight or 10 years old when that shoe dropped, right? And when WNBA was kind of at their height and playing the games, I'm now 35. The fact that there hasn't been a shoe, a signature shoe for a woman athlete is insane to me. You know, we've had this conversation before, but like, I will say the industry has moved towards doing a lot of collaborations with women designers. Like you mentioned Melody Asani earlier, Alayli May, which is dope. Like these are yeah. people who have driven sneaker culture. They've been there from the jump. It makes sense to collaborate with them. But again, one thing I note is those are still silhouettes, right? They usually typically redesign like the Jordan ones or like the mids. Those are male silhouettes, right? Those are Jordan silhouettes. And we still haven't seen any collaborators given the opportunity to be like, hey, like you designed something from scratch. Or, you know, like you said, put your signature, your name on it is going to be attached to it. You're going to get royalties off these sales or anything like that. We haven't seen that from women athletes. And I think it plays into the bigger issue of equity with women athletes from a you know very broad perspective, whether it's the women's soccer players negotiating pay, whether it's WNBA having to supplement their income and play games overseas for like a country like China or Russia because they're simply not getting the salaries and endorsements and sponsorships the way male athletes have. And it's 2022. And I know that, you know, Nike just did a massive, you know, $75 million investment WNBA. So I'm curious to see, like, are we going to get shoes out of the endorsement deal? What does that actually look like? 
Because 75 million, that's sometimes someone's annual salary at the NBA, right? That's still not a lot of money when you think about it. It still feels like pennies being thrown. But yes, I'm just curious where it goes. But I think it's really kind of tied back to a broader equity issue of just women's sport not being prioritized and the industry being built around male sport. And we haven't seen it evolve because it's the same folks driving that culture. And there hasn't been a brand to say, hey, like, we're going to flip this. One thing that keeps coming back to mind for me as we are discussing this, the culture of sneaker culture and who Lilith NYC is for. And on your website and your marketing, you say women, femmes and the underrepresented. You have this big size run. And I've heard you talk previously about how it's for everyone to participate. It just happens to be in women's sizing. And if men want to participate, the more the merrier. They, They feel like clouds. But you just have to uh, convert your size. And for especially trans folk that want to participate also and sometimes need larger sizing, then it just opens it up for anyone that wants to participate. And the thing that's swirling around in my head is I did a deep dive on shoe size across the world and there's no standard. And I'm like, we keep operating in this binary. We know the world isn't binary. We know the world is also international. The average shoe size across in Japan for women is 5.5. And here it's like bigger like my foot. And so I'm just curious. It feels like you are evolving things forward. And I'd love your perspective on what are we evolving with footwear and sneakers what are we going to leave behind and where do you see this like world going or where would you like it to go? Right. Yeah. I think even just more tactically on the sizing thing, I think there's even more work for Lilith to do in terms of being sort of gender neutral, right? I think right now I did the woman's sizing because I wanted to be very overt and heavy handed with making it clear that this was a brand for women and femmes that historically we've had to do the converting ourselves, right? And now I do have, you know, male consumers who come on and have to convert and they're confused. And I'm like, welcome to our experience for the last 30 years. Like this has been my my life. But also to your point of, you know, we have non-binary and trans consumers who typically shop the larger sizing, right? So the question is, how do we make this such that we just, you know, I often look at the centimeter metric as kind of just simply a measurement of your foot. Why are we not using the most simplest standard across the board, right? Because to your point, Asian consumers do tend to have smaller sizing. That's where they shop. You know, they're constantly, I have Asian consumers who are then having to convert across various numbers, right? And then by the time it reaches them, it's like, okay, was it the right size? How do we simplify this? So I think there's a bit of work to do as an industry and Lilith can definitely make that change going forward. There's just a bit of bit of work in coordinating with factories because everyone's confused between the tooling size and the actual footwear size and then what gets to market. So I think that's something that we can leave behind. I think just the sizing and just having like all those different sizing. I think what Lilith does best is our rich storytelling because that's ever evolving, right? Like whether it's through a colorway, we tell our story about like how architecture inspires a certain colorway, how the tropical modernism, again, with the architecture, but all of these different themes kind of manifest through storytelling. And that's what hooks people and kind of gets them. And there is no expiration date to that. I'm down with the repetition of architecture. <laughs> and at the end of the day, like you are building this shoe that's right. going to take us places. And sorry to be corny, but you are building the future. Like yeah. you are like, it's everything that you've been saying. It's clear that you're like, this path needs to be paved mm-hmm. so that we can walk on it with our sweet, comfy shoes. Exactly. <laughs> There's no expiration date yeah. to culture. Right. Yeah. 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 Sarah, this was juicy. It was meaty. Thank you for sharing your time and thoughtfulness with us. And thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you for supporting. You guys all have your shoes on your feet. Amazing. Thank you for creating the clouds yes. we walk on. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. Mm. Lilith NYC, you have opened our eyes and raised our sneaker standards. Thank you. Join our feet in the clouds, head to lilith.nyc and get yours. Next up, we talk with one of our OG buds, Stoney Michelle Love, founder of Stuzo. Now, I don't know what you were doing in 2008, but Stoney was busy doing the work to build what has become Stuzo Clothing, one of the first gender-free brands and one that helped pave the way to normalize what it looks like to serve our gender spectrum through apparel. See you next time.